I'm Taylor. And welcome to Square Mile of Murder. We've got another olden timey case for you this week. It's a case which on the surface seems to be pretty cut and dry, but when you scratch just a little deeper there's a whole web of intrigue involving the mafia and Nazis and everything in between. And ultimately this case actually had pretty big impact on American law. Yeah. It is the kidnapping of baby Charles Lindbergh. Yes. Now, I would like to make an upfront apology to everyone. So I suggested this case a while ago, right? Like a couple yeah. months ago. So we put it in the program. I I I forgot it's not just a kidnapping, it's also a murder. So I apologize once again for bringing you these really gruesome <laughs> crimes and for uh, murdered small children. So uh, bear bear with us, please. There you go. It's all Taylor's fault. It's all my fault. I'm so sorry. Um, so with that in mind, just, you know, blame it all on me. We, we're not going to go into like super duper detail about you know the the gruesome bits i think no i think it's safe to say that our interest in this case lies a lot in the sort of conspiracy theories surrounding it yes so <laughs> look out for that like, so all the bullshit around it that's what we're interested yeah, yeah. in that's <laughs> very fitting for us isn't it all the bullshit yeah <laughs> it's like that's our that should be our tagline square mile of murder all the bullshit. <laughs> um, right, so before we get to that bullshit, we need to get to the backstory. So on the evening of March 1st, 1932, domestic nurse Betty Gao discovered that 20-month-old Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. was not with his mother uh, as Gao had believed him to be. And when she alerted the child's father, which... We presume she did by checking whether or not the baby was with him. Uh, the three of them rushed to the nursery on the first, if you're British, second, if you're American floor of the house. So three levels up from the ground. Is that right? No, it's only one level one up. One level up. Oh my God. I'm tired. Um, so basically like up one flight of stairs. From the ground. From the ground. Yes. Um, one one level above sea. Yes. <laughs> Mildly elevated altitude in the house. Uh, yeah, they went up the stairs and discovered that baby Charles was not in his crib. On the window ledge, they found an envelope containing a ransom note full of spelling and grammatical mistakes. This note read, Dear Sir, have $50,000 ready. 25,000 in $20 bills, 15,000 in $10 bills, and 10,000 in $5 bills. After two to four days, we will inform you were to deliver the money. We warn you that making any ding public or for notify the police the child is in good care. Indication for all letters are signature and three holes. Um... <laughs> We'll put a picture of the letter up so you can see 
Yeah. So how this is spelled incorrectly. Yeah. So we'll give you a quick rundown. So ready is spelled wrong. It's R E D Y instead of R E A D Y. Yeah. Um, they say where. Uh, were instead of where, yeah. the H is missing. Uh, money, the E is missing. They say any ding instead of anything. Uh, the child is in gut care, so G-U-T yeah. as in the German word for good. Uh, signature has an extra N in it, so it's signature. Mm-hmm. And three holes, so it's H-O-H-L-S. Yeah. Took um, me ages to work out what that meant. What that was. Me too. At first I was like, Cause the fuck? It's like because I gathered like I kind of got the the what we're gonna get into is that it's written by uh someone who's a native German speaker. Yeah. And H O H L S I was like, right, that's that definitely sounds German mm-hmm. or looks German to me when I was reading what I'm about to read to you next. I was like, Oh, it's holes. Yes. And also the other slightly weird thing for like English syntax the dollar signs are after all of the numerals. Yeah, I forgot. I was going to ask you about this because I'd never seen it written in like American English. Obviously, we don't write it like that. In British English, we put the pound sign first. At the front. We do too. I have seen it written like that um, in the Eurozone. Yes. Well, so it's a a common thing or it was a common thing in Germany. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so in the bottom right-hand corner of the page, there are two interconnecting circles. So these are blue circles, just the outlines, with a red circle in that interconnecting bit. So that was like coloured in red, and then there was a hole in the middle. So it kind of looks like a red eye. Yeah. Then there's like second and third holes were punched either side of the big blue circles. We will put pictures up. <laughs> Yeah. Um, on social media and on the website because it's difficult to describe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And also, like, when you look at the actual picture of the ransom note, it, like, it's not perfectly drawn, of course. So it's no. kind of like, what am I looking at here? But actually, the FBI uh, webpage on the case has a good, like, reproduction of the. Yeah. Holes so does well. um, the, the Wikipedia page because that's where I first saw it reproduced and it made sense yeah. i was like oh <laughs> yeah because we've said it before we tend to use the wikipedia page as like a jumping off point where do their sources come yeah. from what's a relatively accurate timeline this case oh my god there's so many discrepancies between the Everything. wikipedia page and the sources they claim to use and the fbi's famous cases pitch yeah and so much so many differences like and everything that i've watched and or listened to about this case also says other things so like it's hard like i think part of the problem is it was just such a big case that like so much stuff around it has been sort of yeah don't don't let the truth get in the way of a good story exactly um yeah, so um, that is something to keep in mind. If you've heard that, you know, the ladder had this many pieces or, you know, eh, eh, we'll get to that. But, <laughs> you know, X thing was different than what we've said. We're probably just looking at different sources, so we apologize. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
we do try and do our due diligence when we're researching but like i say this case there's so many variants that you kind of got to go for like the common denominator yeah exactly but we'll get to that in a bit there um so there are a handful of reasons that someone might kidnap a child looking at the ransom note in this case the kidnapping is obviously for money uh, while some kidnappings are a chance to make a quick buck, others are for political or social reasons. Uh, for example, during the kidnapping of Patty Hearst, one of the Symbionese Liberation Army's demands was for the Hearst family to distribute food to the poor in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, one of the group's other demands was for two of their members to be released from prison in exchange for Patty's freedom, uh, hoping to take advantage of the Hearst family's considerable power and influence. And if you want to know more about that kidnapping story and about Patty Hearst, you should go back and listen to our episode 13. Uh, I believe it's called Patty's Got a Gun. Um, and uh, it's an extra long episode with all of the crazy details about her story. You're really proud of that episode, I can see. I, I, I love I enjoyed it. One. It was... I thought it was fascinating because I didn't know anything about it, but... Yeah, I just... My thing about that one, and it's kind of the same with this one, because they were such big cases, like, the thing you thought you knew about it is always a little bit wrong. Yeah. So that's why I, think I like these. In this one especially, we're never going to know what's right in this case, I don't think. Yeah, exactly. It's also not unknown for kidnappers to leave ransom notes to throw loved ones or law enforcement off the trail. So, you know, mm-hmm. fake, you know, like a fake ransom note, like um, fake demands, and then never be followed upon. I'm just ignoring you because we do not have legal representat- representatives. I I didn't say anything. I just have a tickle. Uh, These days, with a new conspiracy theory for every day of the year, child abduction is often associated with human trafficking, whether that be for forced labour, modern-day slavery, sex trafficking, or in some places, to be trained as child soldiers for militia groups. Remember Coney 2012? An estimated 30,000 children were kidnapped by, well, not by him, not by Joseph Coney, but by his group, the Lord's Resistance Army. I just heard a knock. <laughs> Didn't you hear what? That? She was slamming her dip against a hard surface so she could get the jar open. Why not? Fair enough, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um... The other main category of child abduction is to be raised by someone else. So uh, we often associate this with desperate parents who can't conceive or adopt and essentially buy a child on the black market. But that isn't the only scenario. In Franco's Spain, an estimated 300,000 children were kidnapped by the state, uh, and they're known as the lost children of Francoism. Most were the children of Republican parents who opposed Franco's nationalist regime or the orphan children of those murdered by Franco's troops. In Nazi Germany, an estimated 400,000 children were kidnapped by the Nazis. 
those were classes ethnically valuable were sent to special schools to be Germanized and then adopted into German families. And we also see this tactic being used now at the U.S. border with Mexico, where ICE have, quote-unquote, lost children in detention facilities. And it's then come out later that they have been illegally adopted into American families and had their, usually, generally speaking, uh, Latino or Latinx identity erased as uh, they're going to be brought up by white, English-speaking families with no knowledge of their uh, cultural heritage. And we should also point out, this is genocide. Yes. Yeah. We associate genocide with the Holocaust as being like, you know, just slaughtering people, but erasing people's cultural identity or national identity in that way is also a form of genocide. Yes. Yeah. So, you're America, folks. Doing the genocide. Something to think about. Um... Uh, Now, children in so-called third world countries are also routinely kidnapped from their homes to be sold to Western couples who want to adopt, you know, a black baby or uh, insert other ethnicity here or to fill orphanages that fuel the voluntourism sector. For us to understand why baby Charles was kidnapped, we need to know a little bit about his family and why he was such a, you know, quote-unquote good target for kidnappers. So baby Charles, we're going to refer to him as baby Charles because there's a lot of Charleses in this family. He was the eldest child of Charles and Anne Lindbergh. So Charles Augustus Lindbergh Sr., so that's his father, was born in February 1902 and in 1927 he shot to fame when he went from fairly being a fairly unknown anonymous airmail pilot to being one of the most famous men in the USA after he made the first non-stop solo flight across the Atlantic flying from New York to Paris um, in his purpose-built plane the Spirit of St. Louis took 33 and a half hours so the first non-stop flight between europe and north america had taken place in 1919 eight years earlier but that went from canada to ireland but this was the first solo transatlantic flight and the first between two metropolitan areas like big major basically between two big cities and it was 2,000 miles further than the earlier flight in 1919 It was considered a turning point in aviation, and Lucky Lindy, (laughs) as he was known, instantly became an American hero. Yeah. And what I found interesting was that, like, basically by attempting this, he was chancing God. Like, what was it? Six other people had attempted it, and three of them had died or something? I can't remember the numbers, to be honest, but... but it was like... There was a high likelihood you were going down into the ocean if you tried to do this. Yeah. So. Go big or go home, baby. Yeah. Or go to Paris. <laughs> um, so Charles Lindbergh's father, also called Charles Lindbergh, go figure, uh, was a Republican congressman originally from Sweden. His parents emigrated to the U.S. when he was just a baby following an embezzlement scandal in their home country. Whoopsies. 
Uh, he was elected to the House of Representatives from 1906 to 1917. And in 1916, he unsuccessfully campaigned for a seat in the U.S. Senate. And in 1918, he made a bid for governor, uh, which was also unsuccessful. He strongly opposed America's involvement in the First World War and advocated an America First approach. So keep all of that in mind. Uh, it will become important later. Baby Charles's mother, Anne Morrow, was an aviator, like her husband. The couple met in Mexico in 1927 when her father, Dwight Morrow, who was Lindbergh's financial advisor and a bigwig at J.P. Morgan, invited Charles to accompany them on the trip. The couple married two years later. All of this is to say that the grandson of a massive banking executive, Republican congressman, the son of a national hero, baby Charles was born into an incredibly rich family who weren't going to starve as the Great Depression began. And this is what likely made him a target for kidnappers. Yeah, yeah. So remember, we're in 1932 here. Yeah. Um, once he was discovered to be missing, the family contacted the local police department, who immediately turned the case over to the New Jersey State Police, who then took control of the investigation. Uh, due to the high-profile celebrity status of the Lindbergh family, word of the kidnapping of baby Charles spread quickly. Uh, the Lindberghs had bought the remote estate in New Jersey to escape from the media circus that surrounded them, but within hours, hundreds uh, had descended upon the property, destroying any evidence that might have been there, like footprints or tire tracks and all that sort of thing. Um, under the bedroom window, there was a wooden ladder which had been used to gain access to the house and a baby blanket on the ground next to it. The ladder was homemade and constructed of three nesting sections that, when collapsed, would easily fit into a car. Which, clever... Yeah. But also, that sucks for the baby, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, now, one of the sections had broken at some point, likely during the descent with the baby in the kidnapper's arms. Um, mud was found on the carpets, but there were no traces of blood. Um, a number of the baby's fingerprints were found, but no other fingerprints were recovered. Um, and... Yeah, no other prints were recovered at all, even from surfaces that witnesses like the household staff admitted to touching. Investigators quickly concluded that the kidnapper, or kidnappers, had worn gloves or some sort of cloth to cover their hands. And as we said before, based on the spelling in the note, uh, they believed it was written by a native German speaker. Uh, so likely German, Austrian, or... Swiss. Yeah. Appeals were made for the kidnappers to begin negotiations and investigators quickly tapped into their networks of criminal informants as well as their contacts with underworld figures. Ooh. Basically, they asked a bunch of mobsters for help. Which always works out great, right? Yeah. A number of leads were followed but ultimately led to dead ends. One of the most well-known of these mafia contacts was none other than Scarface himself, Al Capone. I love this. I know, me too. 
When Baby Charles was kidnapped, Al Capone was, he'd been convicted and he was waiting to be shipped off to prison for, you know, his tax evasion. Uh, for, like, the trial happened in 1931 and he offered $10,000, which is $190,000 or £142,000 today as a reward for information leading to the arrest and even offered to use his vast network of criminal contacts to find information but this came at a price prison logic here capone wasn't about to give something for nothing of course not so he proposed that if he was immediately released he would help find the baby and then return to prison once baby charles had been found uh, and good guy that he was he even offered his own brother as collateral uh, by which he offered authorities his brother as a prisoner to stay in captivity in his place until he returned once uh, the Lindbergh baby had been found I would not do that for my sibling I don't even know if she's listening but you know you get yourself into prison, I ain't getting you out of it. I mean, no. Also, that logic doesn't work. It's like, no, we want a specific criminal, not just anyone will do. Yeah, yeah. Although, if we look at the prison the prison industrial complex. I mean. That, that argument quickly goes out the window. Yes. But in this case, they wanted Al Capone. They didn't want Al Capone's brother. They didn't want Bobby Capone or like... <laughs> Gerald Capone. They wanted Al. They wanted Alphonse. Yes. Needless to say, authorities were like, nah, dude. So they quickly refused Capone's oh so generous offer, and he was uh, transferred to a prison in Atlanta a couple of months later. Now, obviously, there was something in it for Capone, but it does just go to show how huge this case was and how famous Charles Lindbergh was at the time. Um, as an American hero. So, six days after baby Charles was abducted, a second ransom note was received. It had been postmarked in Brooklyn two days earlier on my March 4th. Uh, the second note increased the ransom amount from $50,000 to $70,000. Today, that would be worth $1,330,449,000 dollars and 64 cents or £996,486.82. Um, now, the note also included the same signatory mark that was on the first note, uh, the circles with the punctured holes, and that was a detail that had not been revealed to the public. In 1932, kidnapping was considered a state crime rather than a federal crime which meant that it was up to each individual state to investigate, which, as you can imagine, uh, would cause problems once this crossed state lines, especially in, like, the northeastern yeah. USA, where your states are tiny. Yeah, especially, like, so if you're thinking just about what we know so far, right? So he was kidnapped yeah. in New Jersey. The, but the, the, note the second one came from, from uh, Brooklyn. So, so, like, you've already crossed the state line just there. Yeah. In the days following Baby Charles's abduction, the FBI were called in to assist the New Jersey State Police with the investigation, which 
there was no precedent for this at all ever this was the first time i think also at the time it wasn't even called the federal federal bureau of investigation it was just called the investigation bureau so like oh. it's that early on in the sort of fbi's purview yeah i didn't even realize that because in every reference every source it just lists it as the fbi mm -hmm. so good job we got someone who actually knows shit about the fbi because i don't i think it was on the wikipedia page i could have just made that up who knows who knows um so yeah the fbi came in to help investigate and other federal departments including the u.s immigration service u.s customs service and the united states coast guard were all told to be on standby as they may be needed so this did have quite big implications for federal law but we'll get to that later a third ransom note was sent to uh, Wall Street lawyer Henry Skillman Breckenridge. Uh, he was one of a number of military colonels who had offered their support and assistance in the search for baby Charles. He was also Charles Lindbergh's personal attorney. So this third note said that an intermediary acting as a go-between um, that had been uh, like proposed by the investigators and the Lindbergh team uh, would not be acceptable to the kidnappers. This note uh, asked the, that the family use a newspaper to notify the kidnappers that the note had been received and told them not to contact the police. That same day, John Condon, who was either, according to multiple sources, a retired school teacher or a retired school principal, take your pick, um, a retired educator. Yes. Exactly. So, a retired educator, he was well-known in the Bronx and had placed an offer in the Bronx Home News in which he offered the kidnappers $1,000 extra dollars of his own money, not of Lindbergh's, if they allowed him to be the intermediary and if they turned baby Charles over to a Catholic priest. By all accounts, Charles Lindbergh was John Condon's hero. Like, he idolized the guy. So, there was a bit of a Bit of hero worship yeah. going on there. So am I right in thinking in some states in America, you can essentially leave a baby with a, a priest or a minister or yes. a, is it fire departments? Fire department. If, you know, it's a child that you feel you can't look after, you can go, you can drop this baby off and there's no yes. sort of recrimination. They're called either like safe surrender um laws or like sanctuary uh, something you know something along those lines basically yeah you can drop off a baby at a hospital um a fire station or generally there are like churches who do it as well and um yeah they will take in the child like they'll they'll if there's no indication of like where it comes from they will try to figure out whose baby it is but mm. uh they will take it into care, no questions asked. Yeah. Which I think is a really good thing. Yeah. A fourth ransom note was sent directly to John Condon saying that he would be an acceptable intermediary. On March 10th, Condon received $70,000 for the ransom and arrangements were then made with communications being carried out via newspaper columns for Condon to meet with representatives of the kidnappers. 
Two days later, a fifth note was hand-delivered to Condon by a taxi driver who said he had received it from an unidentified stranger. That's quite an impressive taxi journey. Okay, yeah. we just need you to take... We need This note needs to go in a taxi. It's too delicate for the for the mail. Also, like, go find this guy who could be anywhere. Like, yeah. just go find him. Um, this note told Condon that a sixth note would be found under a stone a hundred feet from an outlying subway station. So this is how it was described on the... Just beating up on the microphone. So, Outline Subway Station is how it was described on the FBI website. Where that station is or was, if it's not still in existence, we're not sure. I couldn't find a record of it. I I would just imagine it's like somewhere in the Bronx, maybe well, that, like a terminus that's what I was or thinking. something. That's what I thought, because if he's in the Bronx, he's already sort of more outlying, outlying yeah. compared to, to Manhattan. Yeah. Um, so who knows we assume it was a a subway station somewhere out in the Bronx the sixth note uh, which was under the stone directed Condon to to the Woodlawn Cemetery near 233rd Street and Jerome Avenue in the Bronx there he met a representative known only as John we have a lot of repetition in names here. Yes, absolutely. So, the two Johns discussed arrangements. Taylor's pulling faces at me. That has a, uh, you have to admit, that has another meaning. And I know. Okay. <laughs> John and John there you go. discussed arrangements for the ransom to be paid. And John the kidnapper. Kidnapper John. <laughs> agreed to provide proof that baby Charles was still alive and he would send the baby's sleep suit. Uh, Condon described the man as being foreign, but as he stayed in the shadows, he was unable to get a good look at his face or clothing. My question is, how does a sleep suit provide proof that he's alive? It provides proof that you've got him. Or you had him at some point. Because... Yeah, because the family can be like, okay, that yeah, that's his clothing. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't. I mean, actually, all that all that proves is that you st- you could have just stolen some clothes. Yeah, exactly. Could have just broken into the house on a different night and nobody <laughs> noticed and taken some clothes. I don't see how that's proof of life. It's not. Apparently, the bar was low here. Yeah. Um. Also, can we just talk for a second about like how many fucking notes and newspaper ads and correspondences are happening in this case because this is a very short space of time this is is 10 12 days at this point yeah they've gone they've had the initial ransom note which was on the first day there's another one in the post there's one gone to the attorney there's one gone to directly to john condon they're going back and forth between newspapers like like it's it's all so fast and it's so much and i think at the end of the day there were 18 ransom notes or something in this case yes i believe just just wild so yeah it's it's a lot um everybody was very busy yeah so it's a great depression no one had anything else to do that's true um so speaking of on march 16th a seventh note was received by condon along with a baby sleep suit which was taken for some reason 
to be proof that the kidnappers still had baby Charles and that he was alive. Uh, negotiations continued to go back and forth. Condon received the 11th note on April 2nd, 1932 from an, again, unidentified taxi driver who said he had been given the note by an unknown man. Uh, Condon followed the instructions and found the 12th ransom note under a stone in front of a greenhouse at 3225 East Tremont. I don't know how this is said in New York. I know how it would be said in Boston. It's either East Tremont Avenue in the Bronx or East Tremont Avenue in the Bronx. Uh, so there's a note there underneath the stone, which the note told him about the 11th note. Condon followed the instructions in the 12th note, and that evening he met uh, the kidnapper, John, again. Now, kidnapper John had agreed to reduce the ransom back down to the original $50,000, although some sources say that Condon told John that they had only been able to get $50,000 and that he accepted that. Either way, $50,000 was agreed upon. By John and John. By John and John. Um, John squared. So Condon handed over the money in a distinct handmade wooden box. Uh, the box had specifically been chosen in the hopes that it would be identifiable later on. The bills weren't marked, but their serial numbers were recorded. So the ransom included a number of gold certificates, which were about to be withdrawn from circulation in the hopes that cashiers and bank tellers would find this unusual if someone tried to spend or deposit them and contact the police. So gold certificates were pretty similar to standard banknotes, yeah. but they stated that the holder owned like X amount of gold, so it'd be like $20 worth of gold, rather than them having to actually store their gold themselves. For people wondering, you can see pictures of them online, but the the gold gold certificates basically just looked like regular uh, dollar bills or you know ten dollar bills or, or whatever but it had like golden lettering on it saying like you know ten dollars yeah. in gold or whatever so yeah but they were like the same size yeah. and style and everything it was literally just the the wording was slightly different and there was a gold color too think the lettering or the design or something yeah it's like i think some of the numbers are in gold kind of like the yeah. newer dollar bills that have the, like uh, shiny numbers and stuff yes yeah. so gold certificates were withdrawn from circulation in 1933 so there was already like an order for them to be surrendered and exchanged yeah at the time that baby charles was kidnapped it was like a a presidential order that by by the end of the year they all had to be turned in. Yeah. So John, kidnapper John, told Condon that the baby was in the care of two women and handed him a 13th note, which contained instructions on how to find baby Charles. And then kidnapper John just walked off into the darkness with $50,000. It's very film noir. It is. It's very, like, you know, dark foggy night in the cemetery yeah just skulking around in the shadows with your box full of money the note said that the baby was on a boat near martha's vineyard called nelly 
And by this point, it was 32 days since he'd been abducted. So a search was immediately launched to find this boat called Nellie somewhere in the vicinity of Martha's Vineyard, which, for those who don't know, is a very small island off the coast of Massachusetts. Um, and it's it's like a summer... It's kind of like the Hamptons. It's like a summer resort island and like presidents and fancy rich people have summer homes there. Like it's a Kennedy kind of place, if that gives you any reference. Yeah. I had no idea what Martha's Vineyard was until two days ago when I Googled it. I was like, what the hell is Because I've heard it referenced in loads of different things. And I'm like, what is Martha's Vineyard? It's really funny because I spent like time there almost every summer of my childhood because I had a friend who had a um, very small uh, house on the island. And so I would, my parents would get rid of me for a week. They'd, they'd <laughs> literally put me on the ferry with her dad who would go back and forth on the weekends uh, because he had to work in, on, in mainland Massachusetts and mm. be like, you go with Bill go on the ferry, and then we'll dump you on Martha's Vineyard for a week. <laughs> it's, it's like a... I love that your, your parents didn't even take you on the ferry. No. Why would they? <laughs> like, that's just... that. Then they'd have to come back. <laughs> so. They could have made a day of it. It's not that exciting. It's a 45-minute ferry, and there's nothing around. <laughs> it's just water. But the <laughs> seats were orange, and I always liked that. So, you know. But a beautiful little island, very small, generally quite rich. Uh, yeah. Interestingly, it was originally a deaf community oh. uh, or colony. And there is a type of sign language invented on Martha's Vineyard that uh, was only used by residents of the island and is now a dead language because... Yeah, and then got overrun with vacationers. <laughs> so I'm full of useless yeah. information. If anyone ever wants to know anything that you never really needed to know, I got it for you. We'd be really good on like an obscure pub quiz team. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> right. So Martha's Vineyard, it's off the coast. It's basically off the coast of like Cape Cod um, and boston yeah i've just realized i've put like it's 180 miles away from new york yes. is where i meant yeah so it's 180 miles away <laughs> like as the crow flies straight across the map from new york but oh how the lindenberg flies <laughs> how the spirit of st louis flies um but if you take the roads which you usually have to do um it's it's a little under 300 miles by road so they went they searched Probably put the Coast Guard to work there. Yeah. Um, no boat called Nellie was ever found on or near the island. And Charles Lindbergh himself even made a number of flights over the area to try to find the boat. And there were no more communications from the kidnappers, which are we really surprised because they, they had all the money yeah. they wanted now. They were done. Mm. Um, and... It would be another 40 days before, on May 12th, 1932, the body of baby Charles was found on the side of a road less than five miles from the Lindberg's New Jersey estate. 
He was found by a trucker who had pulled over and walked a short distance from the road to pee. Uh, the body was identified as baby Charles by his nurse, Betty Gao, by the distinct overlapping of his toes on his right foot. And he was also wearing a shirt that she had made for him. The body was badly decomposed at this point, but they were still able to determine that baby Charles had suffered massive blunt force trauma to the head. Medical examiners concluded that he had been killed around the same time that he was kidnapped. There had been an, an attempt at a burial in this kind of almost wooded area off the side of the road, but the body had been scavenged by wildlife because that's what happens when there's no protection around a body that's buried. Yeah. Especially if it's not buried particularly deep either. No. His body was then cremated on May 13th, 1932, just one day after being discovered. Investigators began to theorise that the kidnappers, and murderers now, were people who were known and likely quite close to the family. They were particularly interested in a British servant called Violet Sharp, who worked for the Morrow family at the home of Anne Lindbergh's parents. Violet had reportedly given conflicting information about her whereabouts on the night baby Charles was abducted. This isn't necessarily an indication of guilt. No. It's... You don't... Anytime a crime happens, like, you don't go into the day thinking this is going to be an important day in history or this is going to be an important day for people to ask me about. It's just another day. So, yeah, it's hard. You don't, you don't go memorizing things just in just case. Hell of it. Um, so Violet was interrogated multiple times and police thought they were closing in on their suspect. But then on June 10th, 1932, she took her own life uh, right before they were supposed to question her for like the fourth time. I think it was. Yeah. Um, she took her own life by drinking a bottle of silver polish, which contained arsenic. So the police were criticized for their heavy handedness, and it was only after her death that Violet's whereabouts were investigated and then confirmed. Uh, at this point, it's worth noting that many sources mention that Charles Lindbergh Sr., Lucky Lindy, um, was very, very involved in the direction the investigation took from the very beginning. He was insistent that the infant's body be cremated as soon as humanly possible following the discovery. Now, um, it could have been possible that he was directing the investigation towards Violet, and it was only after her death that investigators began looking at other possibilities. Uh, John Condon was also investigated by authorities, and he was publicly vilified for his actions uh, in trying to help the Lindberghs. But there was never anything to link him to the crime in any way. And he also carried out his own investigation into the kidnapping, claiming that he would recognize kidnapper John if he ever saw or heard him again. But this also led nowhere. With no suspects, the investigation kind of ground to a halt, and all the investigators could really do was try and track the money used in the ransom. They distributed 250,000 copies of a pamphlet, which listed the serial numbers of the bills used in the ransom, to businesses and banks throughout northeastern USA. The majority were given to businesses in New York City, a handful of bills were discovered around 
the Northeast and in Midwestern states as well, in cities such as Minneapolis and Chicago, but they were just that, a few bills spent here and there. Investigators were never able to track down who had spent them, and of course, it is possible that they had re-entered circulation without being detected and then given out in change. So whoever had then got them in change could have used them in Chicago or Minneapolis or whatever and had nothing to do with the murder of baby Charles. Yeah, and I think honestly, like, that's super likely. As long as someone isn't spending all of them or a big chunk of them in one place, like, you could easily just slowly i mean it's like counterfeiting it's like washing washing the money like you slowly trade it out for untraceable stuff so like we said before a presidential order declared that all gold certificates had to be exchanged at a bank for regular bills by may 1st 1933 just days before the deadline a man going by the name of jj faulkner went into a manhattan bank with a $2,980 worth of gold certificates to exchange them for regular bills. These certificates were later matched to those used in the ransom payment. J.J. Faulkner had given his address as 537 West uh, 149th Street, which is in uh, the Harlem Sugar Hill neighborhood in Upper Manhattan, but there was no record of a J.J. Faulkner ever living at that address although a Jane Faulkner had lived there 20 years earlier. Jane Faulkner was questioned, and uh, she denied any involvement, and there was nothing to indicate that she had anything to do with the crime. So more and more the ransom bills were entering circulation in New York, but they weren't being picked up by cashiers. It wasn't being noticed. It was only when they got to the banks that it was you know, people were realizing that they were from the ransom payment. Detectives realized that most of them were being spent along the Lexington Avenue subway route, along which was an East Manhattan neighborhood called Yorkville. And I actually used to live in Yorkville. Um, Yorkville is like, the bounds of it are 93rd Street or 96th Street and like 129th Street or something on the east side. Um, and it goes from the East River to like 3rd Avenue. I lived on East 95th Street between 2nd, no, 2nd and 3rd Avenue or 1st and 2nd. It's been a while, (laughs) but uh, it was cheap when I lived there because they were building another. Oh, they were building the 2nd Avenue subway. So I was between 1st and 2nd Avenues. There we go. Um, But yes, Lexington Avenue, that would be the. Four five six, the green subway. I take your word for it. <laughs> um, now, at the time, back in the thirties, this neighborhood had a large German and Austrian community, which fit with the investigators' theory that the mistakes and strange word choices in the first ransom note could be explained if the writer was a native German speaker. So, that fit. In September nineteen thirty-four. Two and a half years since the kidnap and murder of baby Charles, a bank teller found a gold certificate which had been traced back to a local petrol station. In the margin around the edge of the bill, the store manager had scribbled down a license plate number. This was a 
from the car belonged to a customer who had paid with the gold certificate bill because he thought he was acting suspiciously and might have been a counterfeiter. Which is plausible, considering it's 18 months since yeah. the bills have been phased out. And also, I love that he bought 98 cents worth of gas and paid with a $10 gold certificate. <laughs> Talk about overkill. Like, it's, like you, it's like trying to draw attention to yourself. Exactly. So the license plate was traced back to a man named Richard Hauptmann, a German man living in the Bronx who had a criminal record back home. When he was arrested, he had a single $20 gold certificate on his person, and in a search of his property, law enforcement found $14,000 in cash. Damn. Hartman was taken into custody where he was beaten up by investigators, quote, at least once, during his interrogation. He maintained his innocence and said that he had found the money amongst the possessions of a friend of his who had died earlier that year after returning home to Germany. The friend was Isidore Fish, and he did indeed die in May 1934, not long after he returned to Germany from New York. This is about where the truth runs out of this. Yeah. A search of Hauptmann's home revealed a number of things which linked him to the crime, including a notebook that contained a diagram of a ladder similar to the one used in the kidnapping, John Condon's telephone number and address, a sawed-off floorboard was also discovered in the attic of his home. This section of wood was determined by a wood expert, and yes, that's a thing, um, to be an exact match to one of the pieces of wood used to create the ladder. On September 24th, 1934, Richard Hauptman was indicted in New York for extorting a ransom from Charles Lindbergh. And October 8th, he was indicted for the murder of baby Charles. He was then surrendered to New Jersey authorities and transferred to the Hunterdon County Jail in Flemington, New Jersey to await his trial. As we've said many times before, um, we don't put a lot of faith in composite sketches, but if you look at this one, uh, this is one of the few where the uh, the guy they arrest is really very, very similar to uh, the composite drawing put together from John Condon's description. So a quick bit of background on Hartman. He was born Bruno Richard Hartman in the town of Kamenz near Dresden in Saxony, Germany, on November 26, 1899. He was the youngest of five, with three elder brothers and an elder sister. In his teens, he attended trade school at night, first becoming first training to become a carpenter before changing to machine building. In 1917, his father died. Then his brother Herman was killed in France, fighting in World War I. Shortly after that, his brother Max was killed in action in Russia. He was then conscripted to the German army later in 1917, serving in an artillery division for the final year of the war. After the war, he and a friend robbed two women who were pushing prams along the road, broke into and burglarized a local mayor's house, and he was suspected of a number of other burglaries. He served three years in prison. In November 1924, after his release from prison, 
Hartman stowed himself away on an ocean liner bound for New York and after lying to immigration in, I assume, was it still Ellis Island at that point? Uh, About his life in Germany, Hartman settled in the already established German community in New York City. In 1925, he met Anna Schofler, a waitress who had emigrated from Germany, and the couple married later that year and started a family eight years later. Hauptmann's trial began in Flemington in February 1935 and was dubbed the trial of the century. Every hotel was fully booked uh, with reporters and curious members of the public who flocked to the courthouse. The New York Mirror bought the rights to Hauptmann's story in exchange uh, for hiring an attorney for him. It's a pretty good deal. Depends how expensive the attorney is. I'd imagine you'd want a very expensive attorney for this. Yeah. Um, The trial lasted into September, and evidence against Hauptmann included... Uh, $20,000 found, including the $14,000, which was found in his garage, handwriting samples, which were matched to the ransom notes, and expert testimony that the floorboard found in his house matched the ladder used in the kidnapping. Um, he was identified as the man who received the ransom money, the man who spent the gold certificates, and a witness claimed to see him in the area near the Lindbergh home uh, on the day of the kidnapping. But the defense argued that it was all circumstantial evidence um, and there were no fingerprints at the scene on the ladder or the ransom notes or any other proof that he was ever at the Lindbergh home. Hartman had no source of income for the past few years, yet he had been able to afford extravagant purchases and send his wife on trips home to Germany. He claimed that his friend Isidore Fish, who had died after returning to Germany, owed him thousands of dollars, and so when he found the box filled with money and gold certificates, he just kept them. I mean, if someone owes you thousands of dollars and then they die and you find thousands of dollars in their possession. Yeah. Like, it's... that's Take what you're owed. That's not the most outrageous explanation, certainly. No. But the jury didn't believe Hotman's proclamations of innocence, and he was found guilty of first-degree murder on February 13th, 1935. He was sentenced to death. His legal team appealed the sentence and his execution was stayed twice. But on April 3rd, 1936, he was taken to New Jersey's electric chair. He maintained his innocence right up until the end, proclaiming. And I'm going to try it, but I'm probably going to get it wrong. Ich bin absolut unschuldig an den Verbrechen, die man mir so Last licked. Well done. Well done. See, Duolingo is paying off. <laughs> Which, according to the internet, translates as I am absolutely innocent of the crimes with which I am charged. This was before he was led from his cell to the chair. What? And I know we do have some German listeners, so you can tell me if I'm wrong <laughs> <laughs> or how badly. <laughs> my uh, pronunciation was <laughs> i'm sure they'll be gentle um his widow anna also proclaimed his innocence right up until she died in 1994 she lived a long time holy shit yeah um 
she had him cremated and two Lutheran pastors conducted a private memorial service. But outside the church, 2,000 people had gathered. Um, now, we can't know for sure, but it's likely that most of them would have been members of the press and the general public rather than 2,000 mourners. But, of course, that isn't the end of the story. We would probably wouldn't have done this case if it was. No. Um, so the case has come under a great deal of scrutiny ever since Hauptmann's conviction and execution. And there are many alternative theories which posit that Hauptmann was innocent all along and that the killer was a lot closer to home. So, like we said at the top, there's a lot to this, and we don't have time to go into all of these different theories. Um, so we will cover some of the more popular ones, and you know, we'll link you to all the places where you can go look at the really outlandish ones too. Yeah. Um now, according to one fingerprint expert, uh, fingerprints were found on the ladder, but none of them matched Hauptmann. And so the investigators washed the ladder to remove all of the fingerprints and claimed that no prints were actually found. So most theories focus on the idea that Charles Lindbergh was responsible for his son's death in one way or another and manufactured the kidnap story as a cover-up. One theory posits that Charles Lindbergh had climbed up the ladder and brought his son out the window, back down the ladder, but had dropped the baby while he was descending, accidentally killing him. That would make sense. Blunt force trauma. Mm -hmm. that, that would add up. So remember that 1932, Charles Lindbergh was still an American hero, making big changes in aviation, writing books, touring the country spouting racism but we'll get to that in a minute <laughs> so it does make sense that he would fear the backlash if the public heard that he was responsible for his son's death even if it was an accident and rich people have resources beyond most of us to make their problems disappear now another theory posits that baby charles didn't actually die Charles Lindbergh may have been an American hero, but as I just said, he was also a raging racist piece of shit. Remember when we said that his congressman father was a big believer in America first politics and really opposed to US involvement in, for well, in the First World War? Well, the racist apple didn't fall far from the nationalist tree. Yeah. Charles Lindbergh was a huge advocate of eugenics. Yay. He was known to be anti-Semitic and supported uh, Nazi attempts to deal with what he described in many speeches and articles as, quote, the Jewish problem. So that's not great. Uh, eugenics, if you don't know, is a set of beliefs and practices that aim to improve the genetic quality of a human population by excluding people and groups judged to be inferior or promoting those judged to be superior. What that has always meant historically is the mass sterilization of those believed to be inferior and the advancement of those believed to be superior. Basically, it's the scientific or pseudoscientific arm of white supremacy, um, also known as scientific racism. Uh, 
as well as supporting white supremacy, those who advocate for eugenics also advocate for the sterilization of anyone they believe to be physically inferior, such as those with disabilities or mental illnesses. We don't have time to fully explore the ins and outs of eugenics or even Lindbergh's racist ramblings. And you might be wondering how it all links up to baby Charles. Well, let me tell you. There were murmurings amongst the upper classes that baby Charles had been born with some kind of physical disability. Now, for a card-carrying eugenics supporter, this was pretty much a punishment worse than death. Not only was Charles Lindbergh this big American hero, he was like the perfect example of American manhood. He was fit and healthy, he'd served in the military, he had this perfect American dream kind of life. So how could such a fine specimen of American manhood have produced a defective child? Obviously, a man who advocated for disabled people to be sterilised and or killed couldn't have the public knowing that he had a son with physical disabilities. So, the theory goes that he orchestrated the whole thing, he smuggled his son out of the country, faked the kidnapping, acquired a dead child from somewhere to be used as a decoy, it was the family nursemaid who identified the boy, she could easily have been forced to do it, easily have been paid off, and then the body was quickly cremated the day after being found to ensure that nobody would ever know. Yeah. So there's that. <laughs> mm. Um, now another like slight variation on that that I've heard is that like he may have paid someone to kidnap the baby in hopes of then just like secreting a baby Charles off into an institution somewhere where he'd never be found and then like the public would just assume he was missing forever so yeah i mean there's lots of variations on that and of course the other one is that that was actually baby charles who was found and it just all went wrong somewhere exactly so there's a lot of different versions there um now this theory came about of course with the benefit of hindsight based on Charles Lindbergh's increasing advocacy of eugenics and support uh, for Hitler in the late 1930s. Also, we should say that uh, following the kidnapping um, and the trial and everything, uh, obviously, there's a lot of attention on the Lindbergh family. So um, they actually left and they lived in Europe in various places for three years uh, and were very, very close with higher-ups in the Nazi uh, party and and with Hitler. So that's what's driving these theories, right? Um, But the theory, the whole kidnapped by Lindbergh, organized by Lindbergh, um, it was pretty much dismissed outright by many law enforcement members and organizations as being pure fantasy. But for the sake of argument, before you you all dismiss it, let's sort of 
get into the details of the sort of potential validity behind it. So, the rich and famous have forms for hiding away children or any relatives with disabilities, extra needs, or anything else that might tarnish the perfect image that they, you know, so carefully craft for the world. Even the British royal family have done that. So Prince John, who would have been Queen Elizabeth's great uncle, had epilepsy and was hidden from public view for most of his short life. As a small child, he frequently appeared in public, but once his epilepsy became more noticeable, he was hidden, hidden away in Sandringham Palace. His siblings never saw him, his parents barely saw him, and his only companions were his nanny and some local children deemed to be suitable playmates. Um, when he died at the age of 13, his siblings complained that it was an annoyance and that the youngest brother was more of an animal than a human being. So, that's a whole nother story, but a yeah. good example um, the Lindberghs may not have been royalty, but they certainly had the resources to disappear a child. And also, a more recent example of that, I believe, is one of the Kennedy sisters uh-huh. uh, was institutionalized as a young woman and uh, stayed there for the rest of her life. Oh. Yes, so Rosemary Kennedy who was the older sister of JFK and RFK and Ted Kennedy. Um, she had seizures and violent mood swings as a young adult. And uh, her father, uh, Joseph P. Kennedy Sr., arranged for a prefrontal lobotomy for her when she was 23 years old, which... That was nice of him. Yep, left her permanently incapacitated and unable to speak. So she yeah. spent the rest of her life in an institution in Wisconsin. And it was all kept mm. secret uh, for decades. Of course. Yeah. So happens more than you might think. In amongst his racist repertoire, Charles Lindbergh also lectured his public on the importance of the traditional family remaining faithful to one spouse for your whole life this spouse of course had to be you know perfectly beautiful subservient the rest of it you know worship the ground you walk on pop out as many kids as you want but you know you should be married to one perfect woman your whole life yeah but it turns out it was definitely a do as i say not as i do kind of thing <laughs> because between 1958 and 1967 Charles Lindbergh fathered seven children with three mistresses whilst he was stationed in Germany. Just days before his death in 1974, he wrote to all three of his mistresses, imploring them to keep the affairs and the resultant children a secret from the general public. He visited each of his German children once a year, but they were never told his real name. And it was only after one of them, Astrid, read an article about him in the 80s and saw the photos that were printed alongside it that she did some more digging, finding photos and letters in her mother's possessions and discovered her father's true identity. So 
In 2003, DNA tests proved that Lindbergh had fathered Astrid and her two siblings. Uh, Reeve Lindbergh, who was the youngest of Charles and Anne Lindbergh's six children, noted in her journal following the DNA testing that, quote, this story reflects absolutely Byzantine layers of deception on the part of our shared father. These children did not even know who he was. He used a pseudonym with them, uh, parentheses, to protect them, perhaps, to protect himself, absolutely. So it's not beyond the realm of possibility that Charles and or Anne could have disappeared a child who they thought could have been an embarrassment or hindrance to their lives. The final theory is that Hopman was guilty, but that he didn't act alone. Some believe that there were at least two other men who acted alongside Hopman, both either German or native German speakers. Now, this theory mainly comes from an author named Robert Zorn, whose father believed that he heard a conspiracy being discussed to kidnap and hold a rich family's child for ransom. For cash, like, literally in a money-making scheme, not any of the other complex reasons we went into earlier. This could also make sense. It is a lot of work for one man to orchestrate the whole thing, and there is a matter of the money. Hartman had been making extravagant purchases before he was arrested, but figures range from $14,000 to $20,000 being found in his house and garage after his arrest. And could he really have spent thirty dollars to $36,000 in two and a half years without being detected? And if so, what had he spent it on? Yeah. It would make sense that he was working with accomplices who he then split the $50,000 ransom with. Yeah, and like, he basically was in possession of about a third of yeah. the ransom money. So, like, it would make a lot of sense then if two other people also had a third. Now, this theory is disputed because Houtman had many, 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 many chances to give up his accomplices and confess to his own role in the kidnapping and murder of baby Charles for a lesser sentence or to avoid the death penalty, but he never did. Some claim that this helps to prove he was innocent. Um, If he could have done anything to avoid the death penalty, he would have. And so by keeping quiet, that's, you know, they say that supposedly that's proof that he knew nothing. Um... I don't think that's true. Yeah. Whether he was whether he was guilty or not, not saying anything doesn't indicate either way. There's innocent men who don't say anything, there's guilty men who don't say anything. People proclaim their innocence right up until the end, even when there's concrete DNA, yeah. you know, surveillance footage, proof, indisputable indisputable proof that they've done something so i don't really believe that that's an indication of of innocence or guilt yeah i agree like i and he could have been protecting some like it could have been a i don't know family member like who knows like it it just doesn't seem like i don't he could have been innocent he could have been guilty but i don't think that one thing alone says anything either way no um so 
with all of that in mind, and boy, is it a lot. Um, the legacy, for lack of a better word, that this case has gained uh, is that in the summer of 1932, just three months after baby Charles disappeared, kidnapping was made a federal crime, uh, which means it's now uh, under the remit of the FBI. Um, so that is something that's good uh, to come out of it. Um, and actually it was, so it was made a federal crime and a capital offense at the same time. And that is the story of the kidnapping and murder of baby Charles Lindbergh. Um, yeah, so what's your theory? I don't know. I mean, I like a good conspiracy theory. <laughs> you you yes, know this, yes. but the I had no idea about the eugenics-ness of it all. Mm -hmm. And quite honestly, that theory to me is plausible, whether it's likely is a different matter mm -hmm. but i think it's entirely plausible like you say there's farm for everyone the royal family the kennedys you know everyone in between in those kind of positions of power and money has disappeared away relatives who were an inconvenience or a disruption to that perfectly curated life yeah. um so i think it's possible but like I say it's very much it's in the like it's a hindsight something we can like look at with hindsight and we can twist the facts of his beliefs and everything like that to fit the crime. Mm -hmm. So there was never any evidence that that's what he did. Yeah. And also um, medical experts have looked at this theory and they've said that so I, I believe one of the major theories of this idea that baby Charles was like not a perfectly healthy child was that he had a mild form of rickets, um, which, yeah. you know, causes in, in extreme cases, causes your legs to be really bowed and like uh, deformed. Yeah, but he'd already been treated yes. for that, so that wasn't a like that wasn't likely to happen. Well, exactly. So he had. They say that the he may have had a mild form, but he was being treated with vitamin D, and so like, if that was the thing that was, like, people try to point to as well, this was the super embarrassing, like, medical condition that that they needed to hide away. Like, it seems a little weak. Um, yeah. The eugenics theory is very seductive because it's like... Oh, definitely. Right? Because it's like, oh, this, this guy who was an American hero and everybody loved him and his baby went missing and it was so sad. And then later on in life, everyone came to know that he was a total evil lunatic basically yeah he's like he's like a comic book villain. yeah so like it's super like you want it to be like oh actually this guy did it because he's a really bad person and and like he was ashamed of his son and 
and just look at this like it it sort of absolves like the american public who so adored him of yeah. making a bad choice right um yeah. i think yeah it, it's that classic like oh don't look look over yeah. there don't look at, it's like don't look at us worshiping this man look at him for what he yeah. did not for us endorsing what yeah. he believed yeah, exactly and and like it's it's hard because many terrible people have also made great advances in society right like it happens yeah. more than you even hitler even hitler like vw bug would yep so um leisure facilities in every town yep. the banning of fox hunting in uh, germany at that time so yeah it happens that does not absolve you no. and like <laughs> And he, like, so Lindbergh was big in aviation, but he was also an inventor, and he did a bunch of other things throughout the course of his life. So, like... Yeah, but he also had a sister who had, like, a heart, I think it was a heart defect. Yes. And he and and his wife helped develop the first, like, artificial uh, heart pump yeah. and lungs. So... I think that undermines the sort of eugenics theory quite a bit because he would not admit if he was, you know, a, a eugenic, such a believer of eugenics that he would hide away his son for for being disabled. Would he then admit that his sister also had... Heart defect. Had, yeah, had a, sort of a, like a physical... Um, or medical problems because that is really indicating that he is not from very good quality stock if you go by a eugenics point of view but yeah so i i i think it's a a very appealing theory i'd need to see a lot more evidence to indicate that it was true and the whole thing about him yeah. like guiding the investigation apparently he was just a major control freak so it's not surprising oh, yeah. that he would have that i completely believe yeah. um yeah, I think it's more likely that Hauptman was involved in the kidnapping, but he was he didn't do it alone. No, I don't think and he did. And I, I don't... I mean, I think he was involved, but I don't think he yeah. did it alone. So. I don't know who else was involved, but it just seems like he couldn't pull that off himself, if only because the latter was super janky. And he would have needed someone to hold it at the bottom of it. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I mean, there is also the possibility that they, obviously they kidnapped the child and then that is how he died, was coming down the ladder. Yeah. Just that it was the kidnappers, not his father. Yeah, exactly. So. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of theories and I think we have to go with Occam's razor, don't we? Yes. The most likely explanation is the guy who was convicted for yeah, it. Yeah, I think so. Um, um, whether, like I say, I don't think he did it alone. And who who else was involved? We don't, we don't know. But yeah, yeah, and we'll probably never know. Uh, but it is an interesting case, and certainly a very important one in uh, American legal and crime history. Yeah. 
And once again, we have solved nothing. I think that's going to be our next t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so that is the case of the Limburg baby kidnapping. Thank you for listening. Come find us on social media. Tell us what you think. Uh, talking of social media, we are loving seeing all your Spotify wraps this week. So exciting to see ourselves above some of the other podcasts that we yeah. love. No, it's that are much more established than us, and to see ourselves like above that on people's lists was awesome. Uh, the fact that we're on anybody's lists is awesome. Yeah, like <laughs> I I went through mine and. Our podcast was my most uh, listened podcast, but that's because I don't listen to podcasts on Spotify. I just use it to check if our episodes have been posted. So, yeah, I don't even use Spotify because I'm kind of a dinosaur. <laughs> but no, it's really no, cool. it, yeah, we we love it. Um, so yeah, please come find us on social media, Square Mile of Murder. We're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, we have a Facebook group. Technically we're on Twitter, but we don't really like Twitter, yeah. either of us. Um, so yeah, mostly probably on Instagram. Yes. Um, if you have a couple of minutes spare, please give us a rating and review. Um, if you have that option mm -hmm. on whatever platform you use to listen and we like we read out a nice review last week we read out nice reviews we get sent because it makes us happy and we feel all warm and fuzzy yes. inside and you know feed our ego and everything <laughs> uh, but it does help us reach more people which you know more viewers which will help us expand and grow and means we can keep making the podcast so if you have a couple of minutes to spare please yeah, do that we love it it takes two minutes and it costs you nothing and it means a lot to us um, and if, uh, you would like to go a step further and support the show monetarily, um, you can join our Patreon page, which you can find at patreon.com slash square mile of murder or in the show notes or on our website or, you know, pretty much anywhere we are. You'll find all this information too. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so we have a bunch of different tiers uh starting at one pound slash dollar a month um and uh you get every patron gets episodes a day early um starting from five dollars slash pounds a month you get uh bonus episodes every month so go check it out we now have quite a few like quite a large back catalog of bonus episodes so you know, even if you want to just subscribe for a month and binge all of our bonus stuff, do that. Like, we don't care. It's there for you. Yeah. So, like... Yeah, if that's what you want to do, because I think about doing that with other podcasts. I'm like, I can't afford to subscribe, but they've got, like, quite a few bonus episodes. I'm like, hmm, yeah, I want to listen to those. Just subscribe for a month or so. Yeah. Like, we'll still love we, you. We, you know. You don't get your free merch until your second month, but that's to make sure that postage is covered. But if you just want to listen for a month, Do we're down yeah. with that. Come hang out with us for yeah, a month. That's fine. It's winter. What else exactly. are we doing? And hey, a uh, Patreon subscription could be a, a fun Christmas gift to give, uh, you know, the fans in your life. Or, you know, if you, you could foist it upon someone as a gift and make them a fan. 
if you so choose. Yeah. There are multiple options. Speaking of gift giving, um, if you want, you can now pick up some exclusive Square Mile of Murder merch. Uh, We've recently launched a Teespring shop, which has uh, three different designs currently uh, on a whole buttload of products. Like it would take too long to list them all and different colors and all this stuff. We are just starting to get um, uh, pieces of the merch ourselves. So as as we record this, I'm wearing one of the t-shirts. It's super high quality. The print looks gorgeous. I We are super impressed with everything so far. So go check it out. Um, we have the link in the description, in the show notes, in... Again, everywhere. Everywhere. Um, <laughs> and uh, I think they're still guaranteeing delivery by Christmas, depending on where you are in the world. But just check. It should say it on the page. Um, maybe not by the time this episode yeah. goes out. But uh, yeah. Yeah. So check that out. We're super excited about that. And we want to see all your uh, pictures of, of you guys wearing merch. So yeah, we'd love it. Yeah. And also we want to know like what you think about the products what do you think about the placement the prints like if you want to see something different let us know because we can make that happen so yeah yeah i think we're going to do this run for a few months and then we will take feedback and reassess and then go again if it's what you guys want if not then we don't really know what we're going to do but you know (laughs) (laughs) so thank you all for listening we'll be back on friday for our patrons five dollar and up and next week for everyone else so we'll see you then thanks so much Bye. bye